the last time I was here, I followed up on a few talks I had given on the nature of the spiritual journey. And last time, uh, like the, the day before, the topic came to me related to the earlier talks. And I gave a talk called From the Ordinary Mind to the Mind of the Buddha. Ten aspects of the ordinary mind and how to transform them. So I gave ten. And the, the ones that I gave were, let's see, were that we transform ordinary thinking, we transform the ordinary sense of the body, we transform the ordinary heart. So we might say we have awakened thinking, thinking we have an awakened body and we have an awakened heart. You know, that in, in ordinary language, you would say that there, it's full of love. That's one very uh, usual way of talking about that. A fourth aspect is that we shift from the usual sense of being a separate, independent self. We also shift away from unconscious material driving our behavior to a a large extent. And you can see with these, you can have a sense of what uh, we might say the awakened mind looks like, the Buddha mind, you know, that we have more of a sense of interdependence and connection. Again, some of these are all related. So we're operating more out of love and wisdom. We have more of a sense of interconnection and less unconscious material, less leading to no unconscious material really driving our behavior. The sixth that I name is something that's not really named so explicitly traditionally, is that we also, in our ordinary minds, we're very influenced by social conditioning related to gender, race, age, sexual orientation, all sorts of other uh, dimensions. You know, whether we're able-bodied, whether we are, what religion we have, and so forth. And they're probably, you know, we could name 10 or 20 of those dimensions. Um, and again, uh, this, is, this, this is an aspect of awakening, which is not really in the traditional map, but I think is very important to have in the contemporary map. So that's one of the areas of innovation. A seventh aspect that I mentioned last time was that we tend to see uh, the objects of the world as external. We have a sense of there being not just an independent permanent self, but that the objects of the world are independent. And again, as we deepen in practice, we come to see something a little bit different, that the the world is to a large extent constructed individually and collectively. And we come come to see things rather differently. The eighth is that we have a fairly rigid sense of time. The ordinary mind has a fairly rigid sense of past, present, and future. And that also changes as we deepen in practice. The ninth is that we're often really dominated by reactivity, grasping 
for the pleasant, pushing away the unpleasant. And this is this drives a great deal of human life, as we know by reading the newspapers. Right? And then again in practice, this is one of the main areas that we address. And then the last one, we could say that we're not in touch with what we might call a sacred awakened awareness. And we can talk about that in all sorts of ways. We are not in touch with that sense of the sacred, with the awakened, awakened mind. And so um, this all came to me like a day before I gave the talk last time. And, I, and um, um, when I suggested maybe I'll focus on each of the ten in succession or something like that, people seem to be encouraging. And I, I interpreted it as truly encouraging and not just being nice. <laughs> and so what I wanted to do today was focus on the first of these, which is that how do we work with our ordinary thinking? How do we understand our ordinary thinking? And how does that get transformed in our practice? And so that's the theme for today. And it really is very close to uh, what is for many of us an initial focus and a continuing focus when we practice meditation, when we try to develop greater wisdom and love. And so what I want to do is to explore that really in three parts. The first is to talk about the nature of our ordinary habitual thinking. What's it like? What do we find? Secondly, talk some about what happens when that ordinary habitual thinking is transformed. What does it look like? And then thirdly, and this will be a main focus, talk about how we practice with thinking. Meaning how we work with thinking in meditation, in the flow of daily life. What are some ways that we can actually transform that ordinary thinking and bring it more to what we might call the awakened mind. And in some sense, we could even talk about awakened thinking. Because the preview is we don't simply get rid of thinking. Sometimes we think that in meditation. I'll just stop thinking if I meditate a lot and then I won't have any of the problems of thinking. It's very problematic thinking to think that. <laughs> so you can see we're going to have a little bit of fun and paradox here and there as we explore this. Okay, so um, what's the nature of our ordinary minds? And here I'm going to talk some about how this was understood at the time of the Buddha, but very much talk about the nature of thinking in our contemporary world and the kind of minds that many or most of us have, the, the ways that we think. And I've mentioned from time to time how uh, a Thai teacher, who, whom I met and studied with briefly, named Achan Buddhadasa, was asked what he thought of Western civilization. And his response was, lost in thought. <laughs> right, and... 
You know, and there's a certain uh, truth to that. And some of it is actually more historically based, more based in how the evolution of Western culture has occurred. Some of you may have studied Philosophy 101 in college. Anyone study Philosophy 101? And so you may have come across Descartes in the 17th century saying, I think, therefore I am. No one had really quite said that before. And there was a way in the uh, 17th, 18th, 19th century where thinking became, we might say, liberated from the control at that time of the uh, Catholic Church and from what was seen at the time as being dogmatic belief. And there was this movement to develop what was sometimes called reason or rationality and was freed from a lot of the previous constraints. And that's connected with the rise of science, with the, actually with the political revolutions, where, again, it was going against uh, thinking being wrapped up in convention and dogmatic religious belief. And it was taken to be a great revolution. It was called in the West the Enlightenment period, when thinking would be freed up. And there are a lot of positive aspects to it. But there also are aspects that, at this time, many of us question. One of the main ones is that thinking has come, for many of us, to dominate our experience. We're thinking all the time. Anyone relate to that? (laughs) And with the uh, various devices, electronic devices, it's intensified, hasn't it? One's just on electronic device so much of the time. And it's a kind of, you know, it's a kind of thinking. And so one of the features, I think, of the contemporary mind of thinking is that thinking really dominates a great deal of our experience in ways that you don't find in the same way in other cultures. And again, I think this is for good and for bad. It's not simply a one-dimensional situation. But we can understand that historical movement that had positive aspects of freeing up thinking, it also tended to separate out thinking from emotions and from the body and from values. It was thought, okay, let's have objective thinking, objective science, objective reason. Let's not connect it with what we think is ethical or valuable. Right? And so you have this notion of thinking getting kind of disconnected. And so one of, one of the ways that this manifests in our experience is we spend a lot of time dominated by thinking, being very distracted. Does anyone relate to that? And thinking all the time. I've mentioned sometimes my story of in my early 20s, Realizing that I was just thinking all the time. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't really connected with my emotions, even though I knew I was kind of an emotional person. And that's connected with gender issues as well, but that's, that's, uh, I'll come back to that point. And so I knew I was kind of emotional. I would sometimes cry at driver ed movies. I've mentioned that sometimes. <laughs> you know. And, um, 
I also uh, didn't feel very connected to my body, even though I had been a competitive athlete for 10 years. I've mentioned sometimes I was a competitive swimmer. And I wasn't, but I wasn't really aware of my body, right? So I was thinking all the time, and I had that statement which came to me one day as I was walking. You know, when I was living actually in Germany for a year, I had the thought, I'm just like consciousness on a pole. <laughs> right which was an unsettling thought, right? But there was a way that I saw that I was just thinking all the time and we, many of us may, may see that. That's, again, it has a strong, uh, what, social, cultural dimension to it. And it's also related to gender issues that uh, historically that development of thinking was very connected with being a man, you know? And women were thought you know, in this period, to be less capable of thinking, more connected with the emotions. And that conditioning is still very much with us. You know, I remember the story that I've told from time to time. After 9-11, George Bush was asked, what have been some of your feelings related to 9-11? It was after a few months after 9-11. And he said, I don't do that. That's Laura's area. Hmm. Right, and so there's can there historically there's been a kind of uh, what coding of emotions as more where women go, and thinking as more where men go, and some of you may there was a book some time ago. Do you remember a book called You Just Don't Understand? It was about the gender dimensions of communication, and the author pointed to how women, men tended to have what they called report talk, where they especially focused on problem solving and getting things done, thinking things out. And women had what the author called, I think it was, was it Deborah Rappaport? I think was the author. I think that's what comes to mind. And uh, she said that uh, women tended to have what she called rapport talk, which was more about the emotional life, right? And so... Uh, thinking has been coded historically, particularly the last few hundred years, uh, along with uh, the body and the emotions in very uh, very uh, gender-related ways. And of course, that's been challenged in the last period of time. You know, it's been challenged very strongly for, you know, you know, probably since the beginning in some ways, but in a in a major way for you know, at least 150 years, right? And so, but we can see this, but, you know, as with the George Bush story, obviously that conditioning is still very strong, right? And it's still, you know, it's still there. I think, what, 75% of psychotherapists are women, right? In part, because that's where you really deal with emotions. It's thought, right? So the conditioning is still there. So, um so we have this pattern uh, where we are often very distracted by thinking, dominated by thinking, uh, and again, the electronic devices have intensified it for many of us. And uh, we like to, and a lot of our thinking is quite repetitive. I think one study said that only two or three percent of our thoughts are original. Most of the rest are repeated, <laughs> right? And we think a lot of our thinking is in loops. 
we think the same thought over and over again, particularly distressing thoughts, right? And we have a lot of repetitive looping thoughts, which can, is connected with a lot of our suffering, actually. And so uh, uh, we like to have habits for our thinking. We create all sorts of mental constructs and uh, project in all sorts of ways. Another aspect of our thinking is related to what I just said is that the thinking often takes, uh, takes shape through the development of views. We develop a lot of views which we like very much <laughs> and which we often express to ourselves and to others. And um, some of it's connected with what we've been told by others, some of the views are connected with, again, our conditioning. Some of it's related to self-interest. Uh, traditionally, in Buddhist practice, it was said that we get very fixed on a number of views which are linked with delusion. And there are three in particular that are spoken of. One is that we tend to see permanence and have views that things are permanent where things are actually impermanent. And I've mentioned, and sometimes in past teaching, how this is so connected with language. You know, language tends to make, certainly uh, Western languages, tend to make us see things as real, external, and permanent. We talk about trees. We, you know, and some other languages sometimes do it differently. But our language tends to make us think that there is a world out there of things that are permanent. And the teachings say that's not quite true. That's actually has a certain amount of delusion. It can be useful delusion, right? But it's not really the way things are. The philosopher Wittgenstein said actually that uh, a great deal of our delusion really is related to language and he said, you know, for example, the sense that there is also an independent self and all the, you know, seeing a world of independent things. He says that it's actually a grammatical mistake. <laughs> you know, that he said that we say, I have pain, which is just the way our language works. And we think that there is a permanent I. It's just the way, the, it's sort of conventional language. Anyway, we've sometimes gone deeper into that point, but so we we tend to have views about um, things being permanent. We tend to have views about there being an independent self. Again, this is the traditional view. We also have views about uh, how going after what is pleasant and avoiding what is unpleasant is the way to happiness. And you may recall these; these are the three aspects that we try to shift from in our practice. Uh, again, this is the traditional sense of what is the core of insight in our practice is that we learn that things are impermanent. We learn that there's a deeper source of happiness than simply grasping after things and pushing away the unpleasant. That we can actually more rest in seeing clearly and opening the heart, that that's the deeper source of happiness. And then that there's not a, you know, that 
our sense of self is not what we think. And of course, we have all sorts of other views. Those are the three kinds of views particularly looked at traditionally. And we also have other, all sorts of other views that we get attached to, which may have a certain amount of validity to them, but we, we tend to get attached to political views, views about other people, views about ourselves, you know, whatever, views about, what else do we have views about? The weather, huh. you know, politics, you know, p- politicians, children, relatives, religion, what? One's own body, we have views about ourselves. my body is attractive, not attractive, has these major problems that, why did I have them, and so forth. So endless, endless views. So this is a little bit of a map. Is this a map of the ordinary mind? <laughs> Somewhat dominated by thinking, with a lot of views that we're attached to. It's, you can see how the ordinary mind can be connected with a certain degree of suffering. Right? And so, what do we develop towards? What does the, we might say, the Buddha mind look like? And what does it look like in terms of, particularly of thinking? Generally, there's less thinking. In my own practice, you know, I mentioned, uh, I mentioned in guiding the meditation that uh, I originally saw my mind and I was planning all the time. And I was, you know, if someone had asked me before I started meditating, do you plan a lot? I would have said normal amount. But then when I actually sat and meditating, sat and meditated, I saw I'm planning all the time. And I've mentioned sometimes how it's not a surprise because I come from a family of planners. My sister has a master's degree in planning (laughs) called urban planning. And she makes her living as a health planner working with Kaiser. Very important work. But what I came to see is I didn't need to plan so much. And now I think I plan way, way, way less better quality. <laughs> and so we may notice that. We may notice as we practice that we notice how we repeat things, how we, what, repeat the same views over and over again. And of course, one of the powerful aspects of our practice is that we, see, we get to see these tape loops that we get caught in, a lot of which are connected with suffering. You know, for me, I've looked a lot at the judgmental mind, and I think you know that my interest in the judgmental mind just wasn't an arbitrary interest. It came out of seeing the suffering that my own judgmental mind brought to me and others, right? I could see that. And so I got to study it, you know, for a lot of years. And eventually I thought I could share something with others. But I got to see the repetitive patterns of being judgmental over time I could see how they came out of actually out of unacknowledged pain that I wasn't in touch with. You know, related to something in my own life or some interaction. And I found that when I looked really carefully at the judgmental mind, those patterns of thinking, 
and touch the underlying pain, I could release the judgments to some extent and heal them and have you know, developed a, an approach to that aspect of thinking. But, but of course, in the practice, I could see how those tape loops that tended to dominate me and that may dominate you, with practice they could be uh, reduced in their power and reduced in their frequency. It's one of the great uh, liberating aspects of our practice that we don't get so controlled by these uh, continual, you know, what I'm calling loops in the mind, you know, that repeat themselves. So we, I think there's less thinking. We're not dominated by thinking so much. It permits us actually to let our thinking not be, not simply end. We don't end thinking when we practice meditation, but our thinking can be guided by wisdom and compassion and love. Our thinking becomes more, we might say, something that is guided by our wisdom and love rather than that dominates our minds. So thinking becomes less of a dominator as we practice, less controlled by thinking, less dominated by thinking. We don't really end our thinking. Thinking is actually quite valuable in meditation in a number of different ways. And so sometimes we may be meditating and we think, Let's just get rid of all thinking. Anyone heard that? That if you meditate a lot, you'll just end your thinking? I think it's, been, it's out there. You know, people sometimes think that. It's not true. I think we developed less thinking, better quality. <laughs> and so we can see that, um, you know, for example, in doing mindfulness practice, it's actually very helpful to have some thinking. You know, to use labels to say, oh, there was judgmental thought, right? That's helpful. To name what's occurring, that's a kind of thinking. That's valuable in our experience. We have the practice called investigation, where we look more deeply into our experience. That can be guided by thinking. So I might say, you know, to use the example I gave in the meditation, I'm feeling a lot of irritation. I notice I'm irritated. And then the investigation, can I can tell myself, let me feel what it's like in the body. You know, and it's guidance through thinking. And then the thinking ends and I can really look experientially at the body. What's my experience? I can ask, I can say, let me just feel the emotion. And so the thinking is useful there. It's guiding our practice. It's letting us investigate more deeply. It's, you know, it's labeling. So I notice, oh, this is happening. You know, again, not to, we can be dominated sometimes by thinking even in meditation, but we use thinking in a skillful way, you know. And we also, obviously, we use teachings and uh, we use teachings also skillfully. They're a kind of thinking. All of what I'm saying this session comes out as form of thinking. I'm using thinking to be more skillful about thinking, or I'm trying to, right? And so uh, in the text, it's interesting. It's actually said that the teachings are means to an end. They're a means to greater freedom. We don't want to get attached to the thinking and have a view of ourselves. I am a really great Buddhist, 
and I have these Buddhist views, right? That's criticized in the text. It's, I, I love it. It's one of the rich things about much of the Buddhist tradition, even though there are a lot of examples of Buddhists getting attached to their own views. It's refreshing to have a spiritual tradition say, don't, uh, don't get attached to what we're saying, right? And there's the famous story, which many of you know, the teaching to the Kalamas that the Buddha gave. And in that teaching, he said, you know, the the Kalamas lived at a crossroads in India. And they were, uh, had a lot of teachers come through. And they were very confused. It's a little bit like living in the Bay Area. (laughs) A lot of teachers come through. You could do this one weekend, do another thing one weekend. You come to Spirit Rock on a Wednesday. You go somewhere else on Thursday, somewhere else on Friday. And everyone's saying something different. What do you make of it? You know. Ah, the head's kind of spinning, like what's, what's true? And this is what the Kalamas were experiencing. You know, their heads were spinning and then yet another teacher comes, the Buddha, and they says, you know, they basically say one teacher says this and then the next teacher says, that's not true, believe this, right? And so what do we make of it? And then uh, the Buddha gave this very famous teaching. He said, it is proper for you, O Kalamas, to be uncertain, He said then, don't believe something because you've simply heard it repeated. Don't believe it because it's based on a rumor. Don't believe it because you find it in a sacred text. Whoa. (laughs) You don't hear that too many times in the world religions, do you? Don't believe it because you find it in a scripture or sacred text. Don't believe it because... Uh, it's, a, it's a surmise or a, a guess. Don't believe it because of spacious reasoning. Don't believe it because someone else seems really smart. Who has it? Don't believe it because you say, my teacher says this. Don't believe it. Rather, when you yourselves know these things are not helpful, these things are helpful When you know what's true, follow what's true for yourself out of your own experience. That's quite a teaching, right? So it's really to uh, look at the teachings and even any views you might have coming out of a spiritual teaching and see if basically have a practical, pragmatic criterion. Does it work for you? What happens when you look carefully at experience? What do you find? And so the teachings are guides to increasing freedom. They're not to be grasped onto. And another very powerful image the Buddha once said, the teachings are like a raft which take you to the other shore. If you would, once you're on the other shore, keep the raft on your shoulders and carry it around all the time, that would be really dumb. Right, so you get the idea. So the teachings are patterns of thinking, but they're to be taken as guides. That's part of the part of what's pointed to. There also also is the potential as we deepen in our practice, and thinking is more something that we use coming out of wisdom and compassion. When we've developed in concentration, we have the ability to if we incline to end thinking and have a still mind. 
And we can use that in an everyday way to listen to others, to listen to meditate. So we develop the capacity also in meditation to have stillness without thinking when that's helpful. Sometimes it's helpful, sometimes it's not. It can be very helpful to listen to ourselves, to listen to others, to be present to our experience. And as we go deeper, there's also the possibility of going beyond the thinking mind and opening up to other deeper aspects of mind. In Zen particularly, they were very critical of some aspects of thinking, which I think was a critique of sometimes the way that Buddhism in China got over-intellectualized. You know, there were very long ancient intellectual traditions in China. And some of the people in Zen really would say, "Eh, stop thinking so much, right? Just the truth is, the deeper truth is to be had without all this thinking. So the third, the so-called third Zen patriarch said this, the more you talk about it, the further astray you wander from the truth. Stop talking and thinking and there is nothing you you will not be able to know. Do not search for the truth. Only cease to cherish opinions. So that's pointing to not being attached to the thoughts. So how do we practice? This is, this is really pointing to the practical dimension. Given what we've explored, that we can be dominated by thinking and that we may be disconnected from our hearts, from our bodies. Um, but that thinking is useful. How do we practice? So I... I came up with eight ways, which I'll I'll talk about briefly. The first is um, a special pointer to working with electronic devices. This is not a traditional teaching. (laughs) Okay. And I'm using this in part influenced by, we had had a discussion at the end of the... uh, March retreat that I was a teacher on just now. We had, a, we had a, uh, some guidance from my colleague Oren Sofer about working skillfully with devices. And I wanted to share some of his suggestions and, uh, along with some of mine. And I have to say that this has been a really impor- um, important interest for me. In some of the retreats I've done recently, I've done a lot of silent meditation practice, but I've also spent a little bit of time on computers trying to bring practice to being with electronic devices. And I could see sometime in the future when we have that as an integral part of every retreat. Right? Because um, it's not in the near future, but maybe, maybe sometime soon that we, okay, now we bring mindfulness to being on our cell phones. And we have a 45-minute session of cell phone mindfulness I think it's actually really important. But I've done that personally and it's been very interesting to explore. You know, what I found was, uh, for one thing, that something that all of us know is that these devices are intended to be highly addictive. And that's come out in, you know, in the newspapers, right? And so they are, they are addictive. And I found when I was doing mindfulness with my computer, And I would do the ordinary things. I would go to websites and answer email and so forth. I found that my mind, even when I thought I had certainly enough information, you know, 
Let's just go and see if there's something interesting. Right? That's something of an addictive quality. I came to the conclusion that I was taking in three or four times the amount of information that I really needed. Right? So that's would be a guideline. You know, really ask that question. Am I taking in more than I need? One way of working with it is to actually set a clear intention. When I go on the device, what's my intention and how long do I want to be with it? Because of course the danger is we go on for some clear purpose that maybe takes 10 minutes and then an hour later, I'm hungry. (laughs) Right, that's how it works often, right? So go in with a clear intention and be careful about that addictive nature. Try to be present and aware. Can you be on your body, with your body, and aware and mindful and on an electronic device at the same time? Experiment with that. See if you can do that. And watch out for just that way that one just gets distracted and endlessly interested in this new information, that new information. Again, not in itself necessarily harmful, but is that how I want to live? Right? And so we could say a lot more, and maybe we'll have a whole session on mindfulness, wisdom, and electronic devices. It's a really important topic. You know, and they, you know, I think they have a conference, what, Wisdom 2.0, which goes into some of this territory as well. A second way to practice is to develop further our concentration. You know, and I, I won't say so much about that, I just mentioned some, but that as we deepen in concentration, we develop the capacity to be less dominated by thinking. We develop the capacity with the intention to have the mind become still. And that is something we can develop. You know, it can take some time, but there are meditative practices that let us deepen in uh, samadhi or concentration that permit us to, uh, that help with not being dominated by the thinking mind. And so as we develop that concentration, the thinking mind, again, increasingly becomes more of a tool and less of a master. You know, concentration helps in that way. It's the capacity to, with the intention, to be one-pointed and stay with what we're focusing on, be less distracted. And it can be cultivated. Mindfulness is a third area of our practice, which I've mentioned. And again, here again, we can use thinking in various ways to be more mindful, more present. It also helps us to open up to the body and the emotions. Because I think what we're looking for, I didn't mention this really so far, but I think very crucial, both socially, culturally, and personally, is to have our thinking increasingly integrated with our hearts and our, and our bodies and our intuitions. I think that's very crucial culturally and in terms of some of the gender imbalances I was talking about. You know, when men are fully, when the raising of boys has them be fully in their emotions and their bodies, I think something major is going to shift, right? Something's going to shift when that happens. It's happening some, right? But I'd be interested to hear from your own experience how widespread that is. And so uh, the mindfulness can 
help us be in touch. That's what it very much was for me. Again, when I started meditating, it brought me in touch with my body in a way I'd never been in touch with my body before. Maybe that's true for you. You know, to be aware of my body. And it's been a major emphasis of my practice, developing much more awareness of my body and having that be something accessible in daily life, as well as emotions, as well as what we might call intuition. It's one of the major ways that the meditation can work. Mindfulness, when we just stay present, it opens us up to all the parts of our experience. It also, mindfulness is a major tool to notice thinking and to notice the patterns of thinking. So one of our primary tools. A fourth uh, capacity or fourth way to practice with thinking is to work in a very focused way with intention. I realize that each of these ways of practicing could be, I could talk longer on, but I just want to mention them, that we can work with thinking in a skillful way to develop intentions. How do I want to guide myself? We do that with thinking. I'm having an important meeting with a friend or at work. What's a wise way for me to guide myself? Yeah. Okay, and we might say, I have this important meeting with a friend over some difficult material, and I can say to myself, I really want to listen. Let me have the intention to listen and have empathy. That is very skillful. That really helps, right? To give, and that's, that's a way of working with thinking, to, to clarify intention. We can do that in so many different ways. We can set intentions for the day. Very, very helpful, and so forth. We can also, this is a sixth aspect, we can really practice with our views. We can notice where we're attached to views, a major part of practice. Where am I attached to a view? If you have trouble finding where you're attached to views, the people who are close to you will be very willing to let you know. <laughs> Ask them, where do you think I'm attached to views? And, and if it's a good relationship, you'll have the chance to tell them as well. Right? And so, very crucial area. We can really notice uh, our main views. What are my top five views that I'm attached to? Political, personal, whatever. So it really can be a wonderful area of practice to really look carefully at our views. We can learn to listen to other people, listen to their views, practice listening to other people's views. I mentioned a, a practice that was really important for me that I learned as part of a, a group that I was in where we were, try, we were supposed to be really uh, listening carefully to each other This is a group of people who are supposed to be really deeply spiritual and deep values. And we had like these meetings and people would have strong opinions and views and it would kind of seem to go against what we were, thought we were made of, right? It's like these people who spoke of, you know, kind listening and then sometimes, and and having, you know, uh, uh, deep values of wisdom and they would start to get into conflicts and have very opinionated views. So, and, and then one person gave a suggestion. When you notice someone with a view that's different than yours and you start to get contracted, notice that and take 
the difference of views as a starting point for listening and inquiry rather than war. Ask questions like, is there something I could learn from this person? Why am I so reactive towards this other view? You know, uh, you know do I, am I so strong about this view because of something in my own history? Right? And it can be a starting point for inquiry. If two people can do that, it's beautiful, right? It can be a very, very beautiful process. You know, I'm not sure how often it happens, but there can be these beautiful practices looking into views and really being, being willing to be open and not too tight about one's views. And then ultimately, we can also um, use our speech and our communication as a way of practicing with thinking. You know, and they, they, we have guidelines for being skillful in speech that, that are traditional. To be truthful, to be helpful, to come out of a kind heart, and to have good timing in when we speak. And so a lot of our thinking can really be guided by these guidelines for communication. And of course, we could say a lot more about that. I've sometimes given series of talks. And we, we, do, we do retreats on that go into the, the intricacies of think of communication and talking. And ultimately, maybe the last area, we connect our thinking with our emotions, with our heart, with our intuition, and let our thinking come more, increasingly more, out of our wisdom and our compassion. This is the long-term direction. Thinking is useful, but can it be guided by wisdom and compassion and love rather than dominate our experience? That's the direction. So maybe I'll finish with... finish with just a very brief quote which gets at that last point. This is from, this is a story I heard from Houston Smith who was one of my mentors, who was a great teacher of the world religions and he spent time with Aldous Huxley who was, you know, a, what, a novelist and a philosopher and Aldous Huxley spent a lot of his time writing about the most profound issues of human life. Right? And um, this is, this is uh, what Aldous Huxley told Houston Smith. He said, it really show, points to this last area of really integrating thinking with the, with the kind heart, with wisdom. He said, you know it's embarrassing after all these years. I'm asked so often about the most profound questions. My answer is, try to be a little kinder. Try to be a little kinder. So those are some ways that we can work with this powerful energy that we call thinking and really can transform both our relationship to thinking and our very thinking itself towards the end of 
developing more in that kindness that Huxley talks about in wisdom and in love. So that's such a central parameter of our practice. So this is the first of 10 areas of training that I thought I'd mention. But it goes a long way. So, so thank you. So we have about, we have a little over 10 minutes if you have any thoughts <laughs> about what we've explored, any questions, any stories of your own comments. And we have uh, a microphone. We can bring the microphone. We have one with Chris at the back and Tom up front. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I was listening to when you were talking about beliefs, and I thought yeah. that was interesting. And you had said... Um, you know, there's so many different ones. And I just reminded myself of when I was growing up, definitely in a Christian home, um, yeah. you know, the Bible I looked at as a guidebook to happiness, and that worked for me. And of course, then later learning more about the Buddhists, that was something. And then going to a spiritual practice, the 12 steps, where they said something that I thought sort of sounded like, yeah. where it says, um, take what you need and leave the rest. Yeah. So it, anyway, that works for me in the sense that, you know, I can just take the morsels that, like you said, help elevate. So I just try to think from the spiritual practice, take those morsels that help elevate and leave the rest. If they don't work for me, I guess it is maybe a little bit subjective or personal. Yeah, yeah. See what's useful. Very close to the Buddha's emphasis on being pragmatic, seeing what works. Um, And again, the main emphasis is looking for, with views, where we're grasping onto them. And of course, we can see that in all sorts of ways. How, you know, how do we see that we're grasping onto views? We get very upset, defensive, etc., with people with opposing views, reactive. You know, we repeat ourselves a lot. <laughs> you know, what are what are some of the other signs of attachment to views? Hmm? Yeah, having closed in rigidity, maybe. Yeah. Okay, um, we had Tom and Chris at the back also had a hand up. Sorry if this question seems a little out of left field, but um, I only ask this because images help me recognize yeah. where, I'm, where I'm at and where I want to go. Yeah. So if the thinking mind, if an apt image of the thinking mind is consciousness on a pole... <laughs> Then do you, can you think of an apt image for the awakened mind? Sometimes I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, well, it would be like I would say it, yeah, there there are I can think of our artistic images. You know what came to mind was something like a kind of a, like a luminous being where. The body is illuminated, the mind is illuminated, the heart is right there, and the being is interconnected with all of creation. Something like that comes to mind. There's a, you know, like, there's individuation, but there's also connection. And that all the parts of our being are really, as it were, shining forth. Something like that. Thank you. Yeah. It's a nice question, because a lot of people work better with images, and you know, I was thinking of some of the artwork. Some of you know the artwork of Alex Gray. 
Very interesting, right? Beautiful work. It goes in that direction. Yeah. Please, yeah. Very close. Okay. Um, talking about thinking, I can't remember the author's name. It was terrible. But uh, it's a quite famous quotation, and it is, the heart has its reasons that reason does not understand. Yeah. It's just 17th century divine. He's Blaise Pascal. Yeah. yeah. Like a French philosopher. Yeah. The heart has its reasons of which reason knows not. Yeah. And that that was expressing probably a certain disconnection historically at that time, right, which is very still very strong. Right? Yeah. Thank you. Hi Donald. I'd like to suggest at the very beginning you, you kinda of made the distinction between ordinary mind and Buddha mind. I yeah. I think it's helpful for me to see them the same. Yeah. That Buddha mind is ordinary mind, or at least the potential is there. Yeah. Buddha was like I am. Yeah. A little further along, perhaps, but <laughs> I, I, I see it helpful to, to merge them. Yeah, yeah. Maybe I think that's a helpful point that uh, we don't want to think that we somehow go beyond the ordinary thinking process. So I was using ordinary, you know, sort of conjoined with the word habitual and conditioned, right? So I was pointing to the, um, the conditioned, everyday, ordinary mind. But you, you, I think you're right to say that's a little bit tricky and could be a little misleading because, uh, you know, I think I like to also think that eventually, you know, when we work through all this, the Buddha mind still has, you know, the Buddha still does planning, <laughs> right? There's still some planning. The Buddha says, ah, it looks like a nice day. <laughs> Right, that's that's aspects of the ordinary mind. So, but it's ordinary in a different way. So maybe we, you know, one of the models I use is like that. Uh, I've used it here sometimes. Is like that Zen uh, teaching, where you know, when I was first before I practiced Zen, mountains were mountains and rivers were rivers. It's ordinary, right? But then after I practiced for some time and got very deep, mountains were no longer mountains and rivers were no longer rivers. But then when I'd gone to the full depth, mountains were once again mountains and rivers were once again rivers. Right, so that's pointing to the way. But So I sometimes call that last, it's ordinary, but it's the extraordinary ordinary. So there's the ordinary habitual and there's the ordinary extraordinary. Yeah, very much. Yeah, yeah. That um, yeah. So, so you're saying be a little careful with the use of ordinary as a, as a term. Yeah, yeah. We want to not use the language in a way which makes it sound like the Buddha, some other creature. That's not us. That's 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 helpful. Hi. Hi. Uh, when I study the Dharma or receive teachings and instructions, I find I. Um, I think a lot about it, you know, and I enjoy thinking about it. And um, I imagine there would be skillful and unskillful ways to do that. So if I'm not uh, grasping at the teachings or uh, thinking that it has to be 
a certain way. Yeah. Can it be a guide, a skillful guide to my... Yeah, yeah, very much. Uh, very, very nice question. So, um, but, it's, but it's a great question because we can look in my study, in my use of teachings, am I grasping too much, you know? And we, again, we can look for telltale signs, you know, you go off after, you know, later this afternoon you talk to a friend. I was at Spirit Rock earlier today. <laughs> I've been studying about how to transform thinking. <laughs> yeah. You should do that too. <laughs> right, so we can, we can look for those signs, but, you know, um, a little bit of grasping is okay. It kind of comes to the territory, so it's not like, oh, I have a little bit of grasping. I should just get totally rid of it. So that's grasping after non-grasping. Okay. So, um, and being playful is helpful, but, but yeah, it's something to look at, over, especially if you're in this over time, because there'll be a certain, there'll be always certain levels of ways we get attached to views. Yeah. yeah. Hi. I don't know if this will, I'll be able to explain this, but there's a, something called a confusion technique in hypnosis. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but where, no. where you um, kind of have these different stories going on to uh, kind of get the mind to a place where it lets go so you can oh, yeah. go into a deeper, deep trance. And I know the goal in meditation is not trance, but that concept seems to say to me a little bit of what you're saying in what I mean is sometimes you have to almost trick the mind to let go. Yeah. And um, so there's such paradoxes in some of the things that you're saying to me at least, you know, think, but don't think, you know, um, well, I can't think of another one now, but it just reminded me of that, that sometimes yeah. you, what you have to do to get the mind to let go of the habitual is, and ordinary yeah. is... Well, that's a wonderful addition, really, that there, there are all sorts of tools and practices that you can find in different approaches and cultures that help us to uh, go beyond the habitual mind. You know, and, and you were talking about it was a technique in psychotherapy... A hypnosis technique where you uh, where you sort of do something which leads the mind to uh, be open out of confusion and frustration. It sounds quite similar to the use of koans in Zen. Some of you may have been thinking about that as you were speaking. That in a koan, you know, in Zen, you would sit there and you sit and you're told to sit there and you say. What is the sound of one hand clapping? What is the sound of one hand clapping? And you come up with all sorts of answers and all of them are unsatisfactory. And over time, or you might, you know, another, another uh, way of practice. Zen was very much into what you're talking about. Again, really ways of frustrating the uh, overactive thinking mind and so you would th- sit with these koans and they actually and you'd come to your teacher and you would you would say you know he'd ask what's the sound of one hand clapping and uh, you would say this to your teacher and uh, you would say um, it sounds nice 
And, and she would say, back to your koan. <laughs> right? In other words, you're still operating out of your conceptual mind. And, and so over time, one would reach a point where it was just the, the conceptual mind trying to figure out was just at its end, and that could be a time when the mind opens. So it's quite similar, right? And it's also, it's, it's sometimes pointed out in other ways. I know one of my Tibetan teachers said that when you're really exhausted physically, it's a really good time to look deep in your mind because the ordinary mind isn't working anymore and yet you're still aware. Look to see if you can see some vast awareness when you're totally exhausted. You know, another time to look for it is uh, after you yawn because the mind is totally, for temporarily, for a very short time, not operating in an ordinary way. So after you yawn, just instantly look, what's the nature of your awareness? These are, these are, these are some old techniques, <clears throat> right? So, yeah. Okay, so I think we're, we're at a point. Let, let's sit for a moment. And how many of you would like to focus for the next week on practicing with some aspects of, of thinking. Really give some attention to it and then come back and report. How many of you would like to do that? Raise your hand. Okay. Um, that would be great, you know, and we'll come back and we'll take our reports. And some of you are already doing this anyway. And so I'll just, I'll just um, maybe go through some of the ways of practicing. One was do it a little bit on your digital devices, right? Do an experiment. Some of you may want to focus there. Some of you may want to focus on developing concentration. Some of you may want to focus on developing uh, mindfulness in relation to thinking. Some of you may want to work with intention. Some of you may want to work with uh, looking at views, right? Looking at attachment to views. I would just recommend one or two of these, not too many. I'm giving you a lot of, a lot of choices some of you may want to really try to connect your thinking with your emotions and your, your body. You know, some of you may want to look at speech. So see what, see what calls you for the next period of time, for the next week. Which of these practices most would you like to look at? And so we close by remembering that we do these practices, we listen to talks and teachings, we explore for our own well-being, but also for the well-being of others. And so may our time together be of benefit to us, to everyone in our lives, and then beyond those circles to all other beings, so that ultimately we are here for the benefit of all beings, which does include us. Thank you so much for your attention and your, your practice and to be continued. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.